Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Financial Times in London, this is the Life and Arts podcast, and I'm Lorian Kite, the FT's books editor. Few areas of cultural life have been transformed so dramatically by digital technologies as music. But while there has been much discussion of how the shift from LPs and CDs to subscription-based streaming services has affected the industry, we are only just beginning to grapple with how this has changed the experience of listeners themselves. Is genre so important when we have instant access to almost any song ever produced? Are the algorithms that guide us through this new world an adequate replacement for DJs, critics and knowledgeable record shop owners? Or could endless choice, paradoxically, be making us more conservative in our tastes? Joining me in the studio to discuss these issues are Will Page, Director of Economics at the streaming service Spotify, and the FT's pop critic Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, who has written a fascinating essay on the subject for the books pages this weekend. Ludo, there's a quote in your piece from the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote in 1979 that nothing more clearly affirms one's class, nothing more infallibly classifies than tastes in music. Is this less true today than it was then? Uh, well, Lauren, perhaps I should first of all assure listeners that my book's essay is not quite as pretentious as it might <laughs> seem from having this French sociologist <laughs> plucked out from it. But it is, it is an important part of what we're discussing, I think. Bourdieu's argument was that lifestyle, questions of taste, were ways of constructing a sort of social identity, class, um, distinction, as he called it in his book. So... In such a way, high music would connote that the listener was sort of upper class, if you like, upper middle class, and uh, low music would mean that they were not. So you would look upon forbidding high culture music as being something that you could only listen to if you had that sort of a background. Subsequently, these ideas have been sort of overtaken by others that there's a sort of more omnivorous appetite that you show how distinct you are from the others by this very wide ranging ways of listening to music. So you show off the fact that one moment you're listening to sort of um, Peruvian throat music and then the next you're really enjoying Britney Spears and that it's showing off this breadth of listening, which it makes you more cosmopolitan. Yeah. And Will, do you see evidence at Spotify that listeners are more omnivorous than they used to be? It's changing for us fast. I mean, it's going to change with streaming, but at Spotify, it's changing particularly fast. I should quickly flag Discover Weekly as possibly the most important thing to happen in our company in many, many years. Stress what this means in terms of what is changing. We take the most popular breakfast radio show in the UK, which is Chris Evans. So he would choose to play, let's say, Palinatini to 6 million people. That's a broadcast. That's one to many. We have 40 million people being treated in the narrowcast model, which is one to one. So Matthew Ogle, who discovered Discover Weekly, describes his job as every Sunday night I sit down and make 40 million unique playlists. But when it comes to recommending what we should listen to next, 
does the greatest diversity of music we listen to pose problems for an algorithm like Discover Weekly? It posed problems for us, I would say, up until Discover Weekly. And I really want to stress this because, yeah, there is an abundance of choice and who's going to help you navigate that abundance of choice? That's a challenge that stared digital media in the face for many, many years. But I think with Discover Weekly, what we've managed to do is work out an algorithm which combines the science plus the human instinct in a way that allows us to prepare a unique playlist for you every Monday morning with 30 songs that are going to be just right for your taste. And the proof is in the pudding that we have 40 million people opting into that randomized trial that use the academic language every Monday morning. So we're really onto something new here. What do you think Discover Weekly should help people to discover exactly? So it's a combination of we're looking at what you like with intent and this is a key word from a spotify perspective is intent so if you stumble across a song which is in a lean back mode such as our radio functionality that's low intent but if you show high intent that is you take that song and add it to you ludovic's commute to work playlist that's high intent listening but then we also look at high intent listening from other listeners as well and then we cross tabulate to work out what's the right playlist for you But to stress, part of it could be discovering new music that's on the service. Another part could be rediscovery of music you haven't heard in a long time. This Monday morning, Lloyd Cole and Commotions was on my Discover Weekly playlist. I haven't heard that song since high school. And that was just a really nice moment for me to rediscover music from my past. So we have to distinguish between discovering new music and rediscovering old music. But it all sits in that same 30-song playlist. I had, a, I had a go with the Discovery Weekly playlist myself this morning, and I was interested to be presented with a song I hadn't heard in a very long time, like, like your Lloyd Cole, which was The Ruts, the mm. punk band. And they had their song In A Rut, which I used to listen to. You know, I haven't listened to it for about 30 years, for goodness sakes. So I was interested to be uh, presented with that. And also it had a strangely symbolic side to it, because obviously lots of people's listening does get stuck in a rut. I think that's one of the problems that one experiences as a music listener is, is that you can find yourself going back to the same music repeatedly. And one of the great issues surrounding the use of algorithms such as the one in Discover Weekly is whether it can get us out of ruts or whether the technology that currently exists in the way music is being presented to us is in fact pushing us towards ruts as it were, by making hit songs all the bigger and making other songs, like the many millions of songs on Spotify which go unheard, disappear. I actually... One of the things you mentioned in your piece, the long tail thesis, that Chris Anderson's idea in 2006 that... um... Yeah, but if if I could quickly jump in on on Ludovic, reading Ludovic's phenomenal work in the Financial Times actually inspired me with the hypothesis. We call it the hairstyle hypothesis, which is... (laughs) During your teenage years, you experiment with different hairstyles and you experiment with different musical tastes. I will admit that I listened to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden as a kid. And I had a mullet. Yeah, so you'll try different. But then around about 22, 23, you kind of settle on a hairstyle that's right for you and that's you. And I think you can apply that to musical taste, which is there's a period of experimentation. And then you sit, as you say, in that rut of... Now I'm a jazz man, or now I'm a blues man. In and fact, this research has suggested, one piece of research suggested that 23 and a half is the maximum time of openness to new music, after which it's as if the door narrows. Yep. Then you're stuck with that same hairstyle for the rest of your life. <laughs> so if you are stuck with a mullet, then you have problems, but you will enjoy a lot of heavy metal on Spotify. Listeners may be relieved to know that Will made it out of that stage. <laughs> but isn't the job of critics such as yourself to introduce us to new things, to challenge ourselves with? music that we don't necessarily like at first. Well, this is the great thing, isn't it? Because critics, I mean, true enough, have a pretty bad reputation as well. You know, elitist, snobbish, very much the Bourdieu style, sort of high-low types, the people saying what you should listen to. 
the long tail idea, which Will wrote about and debunked to a degree, I think I would be right in saying, suggested a much more democratic way of being able to access cultural goods, I suppose we could say, rather than having some gatekeeper type telling them what they should listen to. So I'm sensitive to the accusation that critics can represent a sort of elitist way of arriving at things, but I'm also suspicious as to whether the replacement of that by a sort of more mechanistic formulation can go and lead to a more individual listening experience. And well, I think with the long tail, the idea that the digital marketplace would basically open up a variety of niche products that people would be able to go and explore hasn't proven to be the case. Yeah, so if we go back to what we did back in 2008, which was covered in your Financial Times newspaper in quite some depth, which is the long-tail theory basically says if you offer people more choice, they will take that choice. And if we move from the theory to statistical language, that means you have a Pareto distribution, which has a kind of fat tail to it. What we did was look at a download store in a very unique setting. We had access to all of the data. And we showed there was 13 million tracks which sat on the digital shelf, 10 million of which hadn't had a single click. So 80% of the tail was dormant. And of the 20% that had been activated, the distribution was what we call log normal, not Pareto. That means hit heavy skinny tail, not fat tailed. To which I have to thank two colleagues, Gary Eggleton and Andrew Budd, for the mathematical work they did. Absolute geniuses, both of them. Interestingly, we maybe two years ago at Spotify, showed how 80% of the tracks in the download store hadn't had a click, but 80% of the tracks on Spotify had. So we are activating 80% of the inventory as opposed to just 20. We thought that was a good news story. We thought that's great for choice, great for democratic distribution, great for diversity and circulation of repertoire. And then somebody built an app called Forgetify, which allowed <laughs> you to go and track those missing 20%. <laughs> that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story is to focus on the 80 which did, not the 20% which didn't. Within that, I think there's a few things that you could flag about that, which is how do you want to measure choice? So very quickly, you could measure it by artist, by album, by track title. You know, what are we actually looking at in diversification? We know that for Discover Weekly, a lot of the artists are seeing most of their streamings coming through Discover Weekly, which is a very democratic way of choice. Again, it could be catalogs from the past. It could be new stuff from the present. But there's one thing I wanted to bring to this discussion, which is really important, which is when Chris Anderson's book came out, to which I have a few issues with, he compared choice in music to the Walmart store, okay? So 4,000 albums were stocked in Walmart at that time. I doubt it's even more than 400 today, but 4,000 in Walmart. What he didn't acknowledge was the presence of Tower Records back in 2001 too, before it closed, which offered a hell of a lot of choice. And I did a piece of work looking at this, and this is 2013. I would love to update it for the FT, but we looked at how much of the demand comes from the top 40,000 albums in a download setting and in a streaming setting. And the reason we picked 40,000, we, we tracked down Ross Solomon, the founder of Tower Records, and we said to him, how many unique albums did you stock in a typical Tower Records store? And I was at university in Glasgow, it's the Argyle Street branch, and he said, on average, when you went into Tower Records, there was 40,000 unique album titles in that store. And when we looked at the demand curve on downloads and streaming, 40,000 made up 90% of the download business and 40% of the streaming business. What does this say? Does this say long tail's true? Or f- no, it's saying go back in time and remember back in those Tower Records days, there was a lot of choice. And Ross Solomon, perhaps it's like Dunbar's number in social analytics, he knew the right number of choice to offer the customer when you went into a store. And we see that today. So there is a constraint around choice, but it's a lot bigger than we previously assumed with the long tail book. 
But the dominance of superstars hasn't been eroded in any meaningful way by streaming. So this is a business of hits. Always has been, always will be. What I think is interesting is how those hits are happening now. So in the past, you would have radio leading and sales following. I think more and more now, if you take a look at Lucas Graham or Megan Trainor or many other artists now, these are exceptions to the rule, but an increasing number of exceptions have been discovered on Spotify where users become broadcasters themselves and then going on to their sort of mainstream success. And I think that's an interesting twist to the order of events. So without doubt, this is a hits business, but I think the way hits are happening is changing. Right. Ludo, could I ask, what would you say to those who complain that no algorithm can capture the full range of their tastes? I don't think that we can express the full extent of our tastes. So I don't believe an algorithm, which after all have been designed by a person, is capable of being able to capture something that we ourselves are not able to compass. And I think one thing about listening to music is, are we becoming better or worse listeners in this extraordinary, you know, digital cornucopia available to us, which is amazing to be able to listen to whatever you want. I mean, it's a real liberation. But does that make us better or worse? And there's a whole range of ways in which we listen to things and have listened to things. I mean, for instance, the sort of self-deceptive aspect of listening, the sort of stories you tell yourself about what sort of music you like, which an algorithm could quite mercilessly expose, I suppose. There it will tell you something about yourself that you're not the fan of the really obscure sort of uh, free jazz that you thought you were, but actually you really much prefer listening to Rihanna. So I suppose that in that respect, it might tell you something. I think our tastes run ahead of us and are very hard for us to know. I think that our tastes are sort of mysterious to us in some ways. And I would wonder whether will you DJ as well, don't you? I mean, do you find yourself listening to music in a different way today than you did, you know, back when you were dealing only with records and things? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm also, I would say, a vinyl collector as well. And it's an interesting thing there in terms of the resurgence of vinyl. I've seen evidence to allude to this, and it's entirely plausible in my mind that the growth of vinyl in recent times is complementary to the growth of streaming. It might sound a bit of a contradiction in terms, but when you think it through, paying £120 a year for the right to try before you buy a vinyl for 17.99, as irrational as that seems to an economist, is what people are doing. And the biggest constraint on vinyl's resurgence, by the way, is supply. We can't produce enough of it to meet demand. Sainsbury's are now selling vinyl. This is a sign of the times. So I think there, there's an interesting balancing act there in terms of being able to search more and then having a higher value of a, that thing that you want to own, a beautiful gatefold vinyl record. How about the quality of listening? I suppose I also wonder about the, you know, the idea, I mean, the myth of the person who's got their Led Zeppelin record in the 70s and they put it on the turntable and they pay really close attention to every single note and then they flip it over and they do the same again. I mean, this is the sort of old timers lament that nowadays everyone's browsing at music like it's fast food. I don't know if that is really the case, but nor am I actually convinced that we are becoming better listeners as yeah, a result of everything I, we have. With the sound quality issue that's often discussed within Spotify towers, the one thing I often struggle with is when I was a kid with a cassette Walkman, I would use just a treble and a bass and a Walkman. So for all the work that goes into producing the highest sound quality, the end user can alter it to suit their particular desires. So I'm never quite sure how that works in the age of white plugs and ears and, you know, where you're listening on the underground and all the other distortion factors which affect actual sound quality. That said, having a vinyl record with high fidelity in your home to listen to at that precious moment does have a value. One other quick comment there in terms of choice and where we're going with this. We are looking to apply behavioural economics to Discover Weekly. Again, we have 40 million people opting into a randomised trial. We have the age, gender, location, time of day, which is quite interesting. 
most optimal time of day to use Discover Weekly is 4.10 in the afternoon. So you've done your meetings, you've done your calls, get your headphones on, and that gets you to your end of your day, irrespective of time zone, Pacific, Eastern, UK, Stockholm time. But also we're seeing this, which is people are using Discover Weekly within our client more are listening to their own music less. Now, to your earlier point, that might signal when you're willing to dip your toe in the water of choice, you're willing to follow that through and explore more. And that's a pretty optimistic sign for the future. Well, that's a nice way to end. So th- thank you very much, Will, for coming in, and Ludo as well. That was great. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.